So what you're saying, the supposedly structured data that the manufacturers give you is so bad, you need to use machine learning and NLP to parse the CSV file in a sensible manner. Yes. Oh yeah, totally. It's far worse than you even think it is. This is Stories from the Workshop, a podcast about software and the people who build it. I'm your host, Meredith Luff. I'm the founder of Anvil, the platform for building full-stack web apps with nothing but Python. And that means I get to meet a bunch of people building really cool things. And sometimes I get to record conversations with them. This time, it's the mucky end of data science. I spoke with Kevin Dalius, founder of Rokomi, a startup untangling the eldritch horrors of retail data. So I started out by asking him how we got into data science in the first place. Uh, so what I did was I actually during college, I'd worked for um, a company called Record Label. Uh, it was started by uh, Peter Rojas and Downtown Records. And um, Peter Rojas, he, he actually started Engadget and Gizmodo too. And, and when I graduated, you know, I reached out to him and, and his wife had a, a company, uh, Jill Fahrenbacher, called Inhabitat.com. Um, and, you know, she and I talked and, you know, it was a really, I think, a really natural fit. And so I started managing her ad server um, right out of the gate, right out of college. So I, I studied music and then suddenly was dealing with, you know, ad frequency and, you know, all of the uh, the network relationship sales and you know uh, advertiser brand <laughs> you know branding and brand regulation and rules and so what did you end up doing so I was getting pretty good at advertising. <laughs> I thought, I thought, hey, you know, I, I maybe music's not going to work out, but what I'm going to do is get really good at this this field, which is just you know, a lot of basic math. And um, I, you know, my family lived in Boston. I was living in New York at the time, and I, I moved up to the Boston area um, and actually took a job at uh, CJ Affiliate. Um, actually, at the time, it was called Commission Junction, mm-hmm. um, Conjunction Junction, but Commission, right? Um, mm-hmm. Affiliate is pay for performance. Easiest way to think of it. Um, and what that means is that an average advertiser will pay a percentage of a given sale or transaction to the publisher that was responsible for the last touch prior to that. So what that means is if you're a coupon publisher, a coupon site, for example, um, if you someone uses a coupon for your site, you're considered to have driven that conversion as the last touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're paid some percentage of you know the, the amount they spent on the site. This is why there are so many coupon sites, because they're frantically competing with each other to be that last touch exactly exactly and you know it's funny you mentioned that at the, at the time there was a very big question of like is affiliate actually generating any value at all right because if you have a coupon field on uh you know a site in your checkout process what do you do i mean as a user what do you do you go and google it right you, you google for coupon for right i don't want to lose that on a deal right i want a deal everybody wants a deal um and so there was a big question of like well what what are you guys doing here you know what are you actually contributing um which is a fun fun problem to try to solve but the affiliate in a nutshell um and it did you're right it had a very bad reputation um especially throughout like the the 2000s and you know commission junction was a company that started in i think 1998 this was really an you know an original kind of ad model um really predated ad networks meaningfully too so you go work to work for um cg affiliate what do you what are you doing for them like what does that job entail so I was an account manager. And so what that job entails is essentially, you know, my accounts were advertisers. Um, and I mentioned a moment ago, affiliate started in 1998, you know, in, in that era, that was a really old, old school kind of thing. And this was before ad agencies has kind of injected themselves in between advertisers and the, the tech companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so my job was waking up every day, looking at the programs that I managed, and um, basically figuring out who I had to talk to that that day to grow my programs. Um, and so that's, that sounds relatively trivial. Um, however, it is in no way trivial. Um, so imagine you are an affiliate manager, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, or an account manager like I was. That is a business role. It's not a technical role, uh, which means that you're you know probably pretty familiar with Excel, right? You mm-hmm. do a lot of presentations, but you're not really writing any complex you know software or anything like that. Um, and so the problem that that you have in affiliate is that it you know it then and even now is really not a very programmatic channel. Right. So computers make very few decisions here. Human beings are deciding which brands go where on the actual publisher sites, which means if you're managing that program, you need to actually pick up the phone and call a human being and figure out, you know, what can I do to make you, you know, drive more revenue. Right. And so now imagine that problem, but you have 10,000 publishers in a program and you wake up and it's Tuesday. You know, and you have to figure out which of those publishers you need to pick up the phone and actually call to move the needle for you. And so what, what you get into is of these 10,000, you know, publishers you might have, you've got a metric for each of them, you know, traffic, you know, AOV and, and conversion rate. And the question is like day to day, which changes matter? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you actually, what matters? Like, is it dropping a 10th of a point of conversion rate, you know, meaningful for this publisher or is it not? Uh, and there's really like not a lot of ways to figure that out you know, as a, as a human being. Um, and so what I started to do was I, I decided I really hated that part of my job because it was impossible to do it well uh, and started automating myself out of a job. And, and so I had studied music and, and in this role, I, I basically had Excel to work with. Um, and I became an artist of array formulas. Like I wrote some of the most beautiful, majestic, um, complex, yet stable array formulas you've ever seen in your entire life. They were just so I wish I had pictures of them. They were beautiful. They were like my children. Um, and so what I what I was able to do was was basically take this like this perform you know groups of performance reports or reports from two different time periods of the data, and then you know plug them into Excel, which is say copy and paste them into the data input tabs. You know I ideally get the columns in the right order, um, and then I would have a summary tab that would you know my my magical array formulas would like do their song and dance and like you know pray to the gods of Excel and they would tell me which which swings were actually meaningful, which ones were actually statistically valid or, or significant how do you work out statistical validity you had a music background yeah 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 so the internet's a great thing <laughs> the, the internet's a really good thing um one of the things i found out i was really good at early on in my career was googling things um and then about a month after i figured out i was good at that i realized that not a lot of people actually are good at that um and that became basically how i did everything and so you know i took some courses so right. you were you were teaching yourself basic science on the job Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I had, you know, I took statistics in college. I had a part of a business degree. Um, but that doesn't really prepare you for actually using statistics that are not predicting like how a dice is going to roll, mm-hmm. right? Um, in the real world and in Excel, no less. And so I was basically like Googling stuff. There was a, a forum called Mr. Excel or something like that, where a lot of really smart people like like the Anvil forums, um, they'd hang out and basically write these, you know, uh, answers to complicated questions. And I just build on those. Um, it was trial and error. And then if my programs grew, I knew I was doing the right things. Okay, so what happens next? So what happens next is I started talking to the VP of analytics and the product teams um, because I was doing this thing that was making me much more efficient at my job and I needed more to do, right? And, you know, I, I, it was fun. I kind of liked it. It was, it was really cool. It's always fun to build things, right? It's always fun to make something new. And then I would share it with other account managers and, you know, those who really got it would love it. And those who didn't understand how to copy and paste in the data tabs, I, I wasn't really... I couldn't help, right? There's nothing you can do about that. Um, so I started talking to the analytics, the VP of analytics, and you know, one thing led to another, and I ended up on her team as a senior analyst. Um, and my job was then to, instead of just focusing on my portfolio of accounts, um, I started focusing on the entire portfolio um, of CJ accounts, which is you know many, many, many brands that you've heard of. Um, and so I started doing things like, uh, so we had these monthly reports that many of our biggest advertisers wanted. And the, the process for those monthly reports was an analyst on our team would copy and paste 
paste a whole lot of different things from a whole lot of different places into a template. They would ideally, you know, check that all the data was valid. And then they would, you know, summarize it, del- you know, copy paste special values, delete the tabs you don't need and, and send it to the account team. Right. And um, they would do this so every month for every big app. Anyone who requested it. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. We, we had a ticketing system. It was, it was wild. Um, it was someone's job. It was like a whole job. Um, and so I, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I went from Excel and the Excel forums were, were very, you know, geared toward data and data manipulation. And so dot, 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 I taught myself R and figured this stuff out, you know, moved into a data role in San Francisco and um, it was a really natural fit for me. And then it was my job to explain, you know, how data science, you know, worked to advertisers and agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just did a lot of traveling, did a lot of talking. And, um, you know, that led to a product role where I was a director of predictive products at Radium One. Um, you know, obviously you spend a lot of time talking to customers about how predictive products influence them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in a really good position to start having a conversation about which products should come next. Uh, so uh, how did I get from there, I guess, being the, the predictive products guy to, you know, my company now, which is Rakomi. Uh, and the answer is that product data on the internet is abysmally terrible. And then product data broadly is even worse than that. Um, so, you know, in a company called Criteo um, or Criteo, I don't know how they pronounce it these days. It's always seemed to be changing to me. Um, they've they've done the uh, the product targeting or, or remarketing uh, aspect. So you visit a product on a given website and you serve an ad right to that product. Mm-hmm. Um, but the missing link there was all of the other channels fitting together. Um, and so when when advertisers share product catalog data today, um, what they do is they send a flat file typically, which is you know a CSV that is you know if you're lucky properly formatted. Um, if you're even luckier, they've removed deprecated columns. Um, and if you're a normal human being, you basically get a CSV that's that's borderline unreadable. Um, that you know has a bunch of garbage data. And so they'll basically send this, and every advertiser has a different format and a different layout, and they use this to pass data to all different kinds of vendors. Um, and doing that is just just this nightmare scenario. Um, and so I was completely like unable to make use of the, like the wealth of product data that exists in the world um, as an analyst. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I was leaving that, that role and, and thinking about what I wanted to do next, um, that was a really obvious opportunity to me to, to start to make that better. So what was what were you previously doing with that product data? So what we were trying to do was actually bake it into our analytics. Um, so instead of telling an, an advertiser, you know, specifically or, or vaguely, you know, how they're they're you know, advertising is performing overall and their conversion rate. What we wanted to do was say, you know, if you're selling jewelry, mm-hmm. this is how engagement rings perform. And, you know, by the way, this is how you sell engagement rings relative to your entire competitive set. Um, but it was impossible to do that. How was that wired through with the, like the advertising with the, you know, the, the ads for that particular engagement ring? Cause you've got to be like interpreting that CSV successfully enough to serve an ad for it. Or are you in uh, theory, disconnected from that process. So, if if you are a um, a company like, and this is why I mentioned Critio earlier, um, if you're a company that is is built an entire infrastructure and forced advertisers to adhere to your data model, mm-hmm. um, what that means you can do is start to do that for individual products. But what you can't do is then spread that information around to lots of other kinds of companies because you've you basically built a media company, not a data company. Like, what does it get used for at the moment? So when you know, we're trying to do like product specific advertising. So if what it gets used for at the moment is attempting to track conversions of specific products. They send you a catalog of their products and then they 
send you, by the way, their, their ping says a user converted for such and such. For such and such product. And in theory, it should work. It often does not work. And it gets very complicated when you get product variants into play. So things like sizing, things like configuration of products and so on and so forth are usually not very well reflected in those product catalog data sets. And then for my customers today, um, the, the ones that I, I serve today, they're you know small and medium-sized businesses. And so the way that they receive and what they use their product catalog data for is an advertiser, or sorry, not even an advertiser, a manufacturer at that point is sending it so that they can actually use it on their own websites as a retailer. Mm -hmm. And what they'll do is, is send a CSV to whoever the contact is of the small business. Um, and then they'll send, you know, if you're lucky, a link to a Dropbox folder that contains, you know, a huge nested directory set of images. And they'll say, great, have at it. You know, and by the way, if you need descriptions, go to the website and copy and paste them. Um, and we wish you luck. So if you are, you know, a, a small company, it becomes almost impossible to manage product data across, you know, the 50 or 60 vendors you work with. That's just the beginning for them. So if you have a, a modern point of sale system, like a, a new cloud-based point of sale system, maybe you can do bulk uploads. So point of sale is that's actually, you know, the, the till, the cash right. register. Exactly. That's what's driving the cash register. Exactly. And so if you see an iPad in a store, maybe they have a system like that. For everybody else, they have to create products one by one mm -hmm. in the system itself add the you know descriptive characteristics for it um, and then if they want to host it on the website as well almost always that is a separate infrastructure which has you know an integration that usually is outdated and doesn't work um, and starts passing data around with bad HTML formatting and you know bad bad information inaccurate information you know out of date and so basically what happens is what you just described is they have a human that enters it into one system and then that human enters it into another system and then there's an expectation that some human is going to maintain the relationship between these two. Um, and it just, it just literally can't happen. Does not happen. And the source document is this horrendously unformatted, probably invalid CSV file. So uh, just do, writing code to do that is not that simple. No, it is not. It is very, very not that, <laughs> that simple. Uh, so what, what our innovation is, is that we've we put together a, a host of different um, AI tools that we, we've basically stitched together into a very unique solution that does a really good job of identifying what's a name, what's a description, what's a size, what's, you know, it's a measurement and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so it can actually take that kind of information, you know, at random from, you know, a manufacturer and try to, to coalesce it in such a way that I can actually ingest it. So what you're saying, the supposedly structured data that the manufacturers give you is so bad, you need to new, use machine learning and NLP to parse the CSV file in a sensible manner. Oh, yeah, totally. And it's, it's, it's far worse than you even think it is. So imagine, I'll give you one example, and I'll move on, right? The, there, I've seen many instances where one of these CSVs contains the you know, prices. They contain your cost, they contain the retail suggestion price, and they contain something like, we call it MAP, a minimum advertised price. It's the minimum price you can publish. Um, and I've seen tons and tons of data sources where the minimum advertised price is actually lower than the cost that you have to pay in the data source, which is insane, right? That shouldn't be possible. It should be completely impossible for the manufacturer to say your wholesale cost is more than you should be selling it for on the internet. Right. 
right? It's just bad, bad data hygiene everywhere throughout the entire system, um, throughout the process. So detecting stuff like that is, is a big, big win for us. Um, the other thing that, that's really hard is labeling all of it and organizing it. So you've used filters on websites where you get to say, you know, I want to find everything that's a certain size and a certain color or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the trick is every vendor that submits data has a different interpretation of what those those flags actually mean. Um, and so, you know, we we normalize that on the the ingestion. So we, we do a ton of work to actually, um, you know, uh, validate and then add new labels to the data. Um, reason being that it makes it possible for us to, you know, build better filters and pass data seamlessly, you know, from place to place to place. So once we organize all that product data, right, and we ingest it into our Recomi system, um, we're able to pass it to all different kinds of platforms, whether it's like a a website platform or or point of sale or or somewhere else. We're we're really good at that. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing that we're we're really good at is making it accessible to uh, people in store. Um, And so, you know, when you so we work a lot with furniture, when you go to buy high end furniture, what you do typically is you walk into a store, Mm -hmm. um, you meet a salesperson, and then you're either lucky and you meet a salesperson who's been there for 25 years, or you're unlucky and you meet a salesperson who's been there for any less. The reason I say that is because every single, you know, outdoor or furniture, indoor furniture uh, manufacturer will send a catalog, like a paper catalog to the vendor or the dealer that they work with, the the retailer. And then that retailer will keep on hand 10 to 20 to 30 of these different catalogs. And the expectation is that if you go and ask for a recommendation, that the salesperson is familiar enough with something like three to 4,000 pages of catalogs to actually make a good recommendation, right? If you walk in and say, I want to buy a sofa, Mm -hmm. they basically either know what sofas exist across all of these different brands and can help you find them and flip through the pages with you, or they can work with Rakomi. Um, and they can basically use an application that's, you know, using their, this kind of, this exact kind of data, but it's been cleaned and normalized. Um, it's been analyzed and, and tagged and filtered and, you know, manipulated all different kinds of ways. And they can just quite literally log into the app, use it on an iPad or any platform, mm-hmm. um, and work with a customer to find exactly what they're looking for. So manufacturer one has a catalog, manufacturer two has a catalog, and they probably use different terms to describe the exact same classes of furniture. So one's going to call them. So if one's going to call them a couch, and yep, you nailed it. So they're not normalized against each other. So you need to do a simply phenomenal amount of data cleaning to turn these catalogs into something that can sensibly be searched right. in, re- in a real-time interaction with a customer, right. unless you've been working for twenty-five years and have already done that renormalization in your own head. And that's only for basic products. Once you get into uh, all of the variants and all of the things you can customize, it's just an explosive amount of data. So if you buy a chair, for example, you have to choose the kind of paint you want. You might have to choose the polymer, the material that actually constructs it, and that's a color choice. And then you have to choose the fabric, which comes in a bunch of different grades for a bunch of different prices. Um, And so even if a salesperson is able to find what they're what you're looking for in whatever brand is the best fit for you they then have to figure out how to find the components that are relevant to that brand they need to find the components that are actually in stock and available so in other words haven't just vanished off the face of the earth with no notice or anything like that and then you have to hope that they put together a quote that's accurate because the pricing is is a different lookup and then they have to put together a purchase order. Um, and so we, you know, within our app, once you find the products, what you can actually do is, you know, add them to a quote um, and build a quote together with a customer um, and start to get really good recommendations and, you know, opportunities to cross sell and upsell. And for small and, you know, medium sized retailers, right, they work with a lot of different manufacturers and any given manufacturer can't prioritize any given retailer high enough, you know, unless they're a giant, right, a big box, mm-hmm. they can't prioritize special needs. And so they just get, you know, everybody gets the generic data they send 
to everybody else. Um, and they basically say, Hey, good luck, you know, have a good year, you know, and, and, you know, pay the invoice, <laughs> right? something like that. So yeah, it looks easy, which I love about it. And it couldn't be further from, you need tons of pain and years of just suffering through data problems to actually be able to put together a system that can do what, what looks easy. Would it be fair to say that what you're offering is actually functional cleaning of product catalog data so it's usable in retail as a service? Yes, that's exactly. And I would go a step further and say, so it's usable for retail employees. So cleaning data so a data scientist can do their job a little bit faster, right? Tons of companies do that. Um, and they help maybe a little bit. But making it possible for that data to be good enough for um, you know, a non-technical user of, of a front-end application to get good value out of it, that's the real, that's the value proposition. What does your application actually look like? So your customers are retail stores. Uh, I think you mentioned earlier you're starting in high-end furniture. Uh, what does your product look like to them? So what it looks like to them is an iPad application or a desktop app, just a web application. Um, and they will start on a screen that says, hey, you know, this is a new item search. And they see a list of, of buttons, effectively, that are filters. And what they can do is refine that by searching for the button they want, like Sofa. They click that button. And then what will happen is on the back end, uh, we'll go and actually figure out which day is relevant to this response, which items are relevant. We'll respond with that. And they continue to add filters and subtract filters. Um, they can also you know, add items to a quote. Um, select all the variants so they can see swatches of uh, the fabrics that are available and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they can, you know, save and store quotes and look them up later. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, uh, as store owners, they can do a ton of analysis about which salespeople are, you know, selling which kinds of products. So are some people really good at selling chaises, for example, um, and need some help selling everything else. And uh, we also, you know, are, are looking forward to rolling out some features where they can move data to um, not just the, the website platforms like BigCommerce and Shopify, um, but to Facebook, Instagram, and, and companies, you know, and Snapchat, platforms like that, Google, mm-hmm. um, where they can actually use this product data to be advertisers. And so use this product data to look like big advertisers. And once you've actually normalized this data, putting it in front of a retail employee on an iPad ought to be the easiest part of the job. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, it ought to be. <laughs> it ought to be. It isn't. It ain't. It's it's one of the hardest parts far and away, or it used to be one of the hardest parts for me. Um, yeah, if you want to do that and actually have it run properly um, in a number of different browsers um, on different platforms, you know, iPhone, iOS, iPad, Android, and, and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. um, you need to find a way to represent your data using JavaScript in um, a really I guess, stable and robust way against your backend infrastructure, which is not really a normal infrastructure, right? It's, it's a lot different to support what we do. Um, and goodness, it is a uh, it is a nightmare to try to do that. Um, and so I went out and uh, when I started to try to figure out what I was going to do about my just inability to deal with JavaScript, um, I started looking for, um, actually, you know what, this was my dad's recommendation, believe this or not. So my, my father was an entrepreneur in the early 2000s in telecom. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said to me, you know what you should do is go search for drag and drop. And it just hadn't even occurred to me that drag and drop applications could exist in the the kind of format that I needed. Um, and so I started Googling and, you know, I found, I, I initially didn't find Anvil and I found a competitor and I couldn't, I could not get my own API that I had built. I built the API I wrote. I could not get it to respond to their requests. 
like I couldn't figure out how to make a request with a simple just API key valid, you know, uh, authentication. Could not do it. Um, and I, it took me like half a day to realize I just wanted to, you know, jump out the window. I couldn't do it. Um, and then I went back to the drawing board and added the word Python to everything I was searching for. And I found Anvil. Um, yeah. So I, I have a deep well of pain that I drew from. Um, in order to make the decision that I made. Uh, and that is a, a deep well of very expensive development that takes forever, that uh, typically is letter of the law and not spirit of the law with the PRDs, the product mm-hmm. requirements. So what you often get is not actually what you intended to get. Um, and it's often not because your requirements are wrong. And so you can sink 100 grand, 200 grand really, really quickly into a complex interactive app um, and still have something that just doesn't really work and is not well tested and just kind of is terrible. Um, well, part of yeah. it's presumably because whoever's writing that application does not understand what you understand about in this case product querying right they're, they are letter of the law because they cannot understand the spirit of the law because their head is full of full stack web development as opposed to years of experience dealing with product catalogs and you just nailed it right i it's very hard to give people you know I, i've been doing this for like you know 14 years or something like that just working with bad data and trying to make it slightly better incrementally over and over and over and over um, and what that means is i know all of the gotchas that are going to happen and how users are not going to understand what you want and so on and so forth and so with Anvil, I can actually write the code myself and write the interactions myself, um, which means I can put my own brain into it in a way um, that I really can't by describing user interface with like mockups and then, uh, you know, paying someone to build it. But yeah, you just you hit on it. It lets me put um, industrial expertise into the product itself rather than having to, you know, put that all that expertise into just developing some third party product that I have no control over. Oh, and by the way, if someone tells me a feature's missing, you know, and I, I've already got it built, like, oof, oh my God, that's going to be an expensive feature, you know, to, to add. Um, whereas now I can just kind of do that myself, um, which has been a, a huge win for me because I, I can have conversations with, you know, customers or prospects. And, you know, a day or two later, if it's a simple feature, quite literally push out exactly what they need. That's been a, a winning thing for me. How long did it take to build this? I built the MVP app in about two weeks. It would have taken me six months in any other format. And that's functionally, of, it's it's about me, but it's also about just the massive complexity and, and number of gotchas that go into it. So, so what made it a two-week job rather than a six-month job? The uplink feature. That, that was a game changer for me. So it eliminates an entire component of my infrastructure that I used to have to deal with and maintain and write and test and yada, yada, yada. So we have a bunch of stuff out in AWS. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have a bunch of uh, custom code and uh, a custom ORM that allows us to interact with that data and retrieve it from wherever it might be in our, our ecosystem. Um, and so what that means is that I have, you know, a lot or a number of different Python libraries that are very specific to my business that I've written for my business and need to import for whatever script or whatever tool is actually accessing the data. Without these libraries, it is quite literally impossible for me to interpret and, and access the data programmatically. Um, and so the way that I could deal with that, one way I could deal with it is to write an API mm-hmm. um, and either host it in like a Flask application or go serverless with Lambda but I'd have to write the API, maintain the API, um, and deal with all of the, the gotchas and nonsense of serializing and deserializing data, which is a, a nightmare, um, in my humble opinion. Um, and so what, what Uplink does for me is I'm basically able to write 
Python functions, which are standalone Python functions that can be called as server calls, anvil.server.call. Um, and they can run on my own machine, which is a, a VM that lives inside of a VPC, which is a private cloud on Amazon. So inaccessible to the open internet. Mm -hmm. um, it can run and access my data, which is also inaccessible to the open internet, um, and basically allow me to deliver back answers to the application uh, for front end users anywhere in the world uh, without actually having to open up any of my data from a security perspective. So I can maintain complete control in that way, which is very important to folks. The, the other thing that about Anvil that uh, is, is super powerful is just the ability to deploy. Um, so previously, if I was dealing with an, a site that was built in a framework like um, Django, Flask, pick your poison, um, I would have had to you know, write all the JavaScript myself, um, write all the libraries myself, package up the libraries um, so that they could be you know, run as a, or pushed as a, a single application. I would have had provision servers or provision instances of like um, you know, Heroku or App Engine or something like that. I don't know if App Engine still exists. Um, I I would have had to figure out how much, um, you know, or how to access my AWS databases from everything that was going on at the same time. Um, and then I would have had to, you know, basically cross my fingers, hope and pray that I didn't engineer some kind of massive dependency bug or bug of my own. That was a living waking nightmare, right? Um, the other thing I, I would have to do is figure out how to manage data across the session, uh, which was uh, something that I am almost completely incapable of dealing with on my own. Um, not because it can't be done, but because it's just really difficult and nasty to deal with. So if you want to pass the items that are in a quote across a bunch of different pages, any given request on a, 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 you know, a Django site or something like that is a standalone request, right? It doesn't store data from prior requests. Um, and so I'd need to deal with cookies and, and actually storing that data in some way, which I'd have to learn all that. And this way I don't. There's, it's hard for me to describe the degree to which it's helping. Right. And so all of these different components matter. Uplink matters a lot to me because it solved a major problem. But the the biggest reason, I think, and you're right, you know, far and away, the biggest reason that that Anvil is powerful for me and for Comey mm -hmm. is that I don't need to deal with JavaScript. Full stop. Because JavaScript is a living, waking nightmare of a language for someone who is a, you know, a Python hacker um, who has self-taught his way from Excel to R to Python. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could help. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and I really look forward to watching your progress. Before we finish, I have one last question. Can you tell me about something unexpected you discovered? Some surprise in the process of building this company? What weren't you anticipating? I was not expecting customers to be as excited about collaborating on design as they are. It's incredibly surprising to me how interesting um, and how engaged customers have become when they give feedback that I'm able to implement quickly, which is a function of Anvil for sure. Um, because if, if it's something like a UI feature or maybe a new field or a new um, you know, data binding for me in Anvil, I can add that, you know, it's always a dangerous thing adding something overnight for a customer. But if you explain the difference between the back end and the front end, they, they love learning and they love making recommendations and suggestions. Um, and I've had people send me mock-ups uh, of new ideas and stuff. I've never seen that so before. So you give them, you get them the feeling that they can ask for something and sometimes it will just arrive the next day. And all of a sudden they're so much more engaged because right. they feel like they feel listened to. They feel like they're part of it. They feel like they're part of the team. Um, and that's huge. Kevin Dalius, founder of Rakomi, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, and thank you for building Anvil. You've been listening to Stories from the Workshop. I've been Meredith Luff, and for more stories of interesting people building cool things, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, 
or find more episodes on the Anvil blog. See you next time.